Hey there, my name is Ushin Lunny and this is Audio Matters, a weekly podcast on all things audio presented to you by Harman. In this week's episode, we celebrate the power of mega rigs, the magnificent sound systems that provide the audio experience at the world's largest gigs and music festivals. I am delighted to be joined by three gentlemen who know a thing or ten about mega rigs. Sound engineer and sonic royalty, Bill Hanley, the father of festival sound. Brad Divens, rock musician and front of house engineer for Garbage, Motley Crue, Enrique Iglesias and many more. And our good friend Raul Gonzalez, senior applications engineer for performance audio at Harman Professional. Welcome all to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here. So there's an age old saying that if you can remember Woodstock, you weren't there. But Bill Hanley was not only there with his company, Hanley Sound, he was also the sound engineer behind the groundbreaking mega rig at Woodstock just over 50 years ago. He also ran the soundboard for Bob Dylan's controversial electric performance at the Newport Jazz Festival. And he worked on the Beatles' last tour. And he's really been there for some of the pivotal moments of modern live music history. So we have a lot to talk about, but let's start at the beginning. What led to the founding? foundation of your company, Hanley Sound? Well, that's a a long story. (laughs) It started back, I came from dance and roller skating and uh, how poor the audio was when they would play the records and stuff. And the organ sounded fantastic, a Hammond B3 with all kinds of accessories and whatnot. So sound was pretty poor. And uh, I thought the world needed someone who would try to make it sound good and and spend the money to buy good gear and then make it happen all the way through. I was trying to get it out to everybody that was there so they could hear and understand what was being said. And then I just kept chasing, looking for jobs and trying to get the big bands to sound good for the dance halls because I started ballroom dancing at the time. And they had one microphone for the singer, and that was it. And no mixer, and they could care less about it. And the small concerts that were happening there, you know, or medium-sized concerts, uh, the promoter didn't want to pay to have you there to do the sound. He was used to not paying at all or paying the electrician in the house. And that was all there was to it. Well, I kept trying to beat the drum for good audio. (laughs) It kept growing and growing. And then I went to work for a company called Lab for Electronics, where I had worked with a lot of engineers and I was run through all the different departments, everything that had to do with building audio gear and electronic gear. So I had a great school engineers that I could uh, talk to and ask questions when I had problems and what to do about them. And I kept beating on everybody's door trying to do the rental audio for them. And it finally... uh, caught on quite a bit later. <laughs> so you kind of created the demand. You really were flying the flag for good quality audio. Right. There was nobody who really cared other than high fidelity people and movie people. Movie people were into good audio. Yeah. But people who, who were putting sound systems in churches and factories and nightclubs could care less about it. You know, oh, test, it gets there. (laughs) And then the recording companies were trying to do uh, Newport and stuff where I went down there in 58. They had gotten someone in from New York. He was there with a couple of Mac amplifiers, 200 waters, and uh, two Mac mixes. And I told him that I was interested in audio. And uh, 
he put me at the console and then went off and socialized. And then we get feeds from the recording companies trying to do stereo recordings on the run. Very bad for sound reinforcement and people trying to hear all that was going on. So we had that battle. And for a couple of years that went on and I finally uh, did some stuff for George Shearing and uh, Pleasure Island Jazz Festival. So I proved my worth in all those things and he liked that. And uh, I was mixing and took it over in 60. Wow. And that's uh, basically how it started to get started to get rolling. But very hard getting anybody to pay <laughs> or appreciate you for work, the work you were trying to do and make it happen well. And so you had this great background in engineering. You had this passion for good quality audio when very few people did. And um, th this led to you setting up your own company. Right. Hanley Sound with my brother. And when did rock and roll acts start using Hanley Sound? Well, the first rock and roll thing I ran into was the Velvet Underground. It was something new, <laughs> big time. For sure. So that started the ball rolling because as the musicians started to run more of the control room because of the music, I moved to New York and tried to get Roseland, which was the dance capital of the world, supposedly. And then I got called from Howard Solomon at the Cafe Gogo to come down. He needed a sound system. And Janice showed up at Cafe Gogo, and I used to drive her back to the... Chelsea Hotel. That was basically how it started to get going. Fantastic. And before long, acts like Buffalo Springfield and Crosby, Stills and Nash were using you for their tours. Talk to us a bit about the concept of footlight monitors, which I believe you invented for Crosby, Stills and Nash. Yes, I did. Steve, they had rented a small sound system from me and I'm trying to remember when we first met them, but they took it out on the road with them and they had not returned the equipment to the shop, so I went down to L.A. to see what was going on. They said, well, we can't hear ourselves on stage. So I turned a uh, modified cabinet that Paul Clips had designed, turned it around and faced it up to the back of the microphone into the performer's ears. Wow, well, we can hear each other. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how the footlock monitors came into existence. Your career is full of innovation. You invented a lot of equipment for Woodstock, I believe, like things that had never happened before, like certain mixing desks and cabinets. Talk to us a bit about what it took to make that incredible mega rig at Woodstock 69. <laughs> Not compared to today's things. Uh, well, I built the console that had 50 inputs and sections that went around you so that you could see and touch by turning your head rather than roller skates moving back and forth at a big, long, wide console. Yeah. And then we had uh, set it up with 12, uh, 12 tracks with the uh, face of the clock as the number of tracks, and then you could sub-mix sub and do what you wanted with it. And it was all, an EQ on every input and a Longevin preamplifiers to bring it up to line level for operations. And uh, tied it all together and then uh, compressed the hell out of it. Yeah. And we were still using the, some of the stuff I had picked up from the local theaters. How that happened was after the war, the television started to come in and all the engineers were building home high fidelity systems. The interest in audio for home went up and then 
it started to carry over to stereo and to performers wanting to hear more. We were probably the first people to put 100 microphones on a symphony orchestra. Arthur Fiedler fired me from the Boston Symphony <laughs> because, he, <laughs> because I had too many microphones on the violins especially. So this is the thing. It's like you really had to drag the industry with you. That's right. You saw the opportunity for great sound. You designed handmade cabinets for Woodstock. You, you're the first person to design multi-channel snakes, EQ inserts, uh, compression on the top of your cabinets. You've influenced everybody in live sound, I think it's fair to say. Talk to us a bit about the the kind of personal aspect of the Woodstock experience. There you were. You, I believe you were hired to come and do a festival for, you know, 100,000 people and you turned up and there were 600,000 people there plus. Uh, what was it like for you personally or were you like fully in work mode? I was fully in work mode. How could, you know, I mean, people want to, you know, go to Woodstock and be high. Man, I didn't have any time to be high. <laughs> and I wouldn't, I wouldn't anyways. I got all this shit going down. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, paying attention to everything, watching and making sure that there's no going to be no failures. Yeah, yeah. Put ice in the amplifiers if we start having problems. <laughs> what I read about that is that it's like, is really, did you have to put ice on we the, started, I read that we somewhere. Some ice, yeah. We'd wow. done a, like, that's it insane. Was so, it was so bad. I used to, we were operating out of the tractor trailer. I bought a refrigeration unit to put on the trailer. Oh my god! A big wow. one. <laughs> that's that's amazing. Yeah, and that's you know, I can't have a right at all. <laughs> that would be an uncomfortable silence. Yeah, can you imagine? Bad. You know, Michael Lang comes up to you and says, I need to make an announcement because there's going to be thunderstorm. And he says, uh, sorry, that the console is not working. Uh, right. <laughs> probably wouldn't go very well. But, boy, my responsibility, I, I designed and laid out the stage area and designed the sound system and figured out how to do it. And then I said, if you look at the, an overhead shot of Woodstock, you'll see there's a funnel. And I tried to keep the audience in there, not realizing that we we're going to have this many people. <laughs> wow. And I'm trying to keep all that stuff. So I broke it up into two levels, the close stuff and then way back. And that's where I use my JBL influences big time. The interest in the sound came for intelligible speech and good audio and trying to get everybody to enjoy what was happening and counterpoint and have everybody hear it all. At that time, it was uh, like pulling hen's teeth trying to get people to pay. You know, there was no money. I One investor and his wife found out that he invested, gave me a couple of grand, and she made him come and get, take it back. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and you really had to fight for it. You really yes, did. Yes, it was an uphill climb all the way. The innovations that Bill built, that he fought to get through the industry, all of them are in place today still. But column theory sounds like a very impactful and brilliant discovery in terms of live sound. How have you seen column theory through your work role in terms of the line arrays, in terms of the other influential sound systems of the time? Absolutely. You know, what's, I think that uh, the last 25 years, we have seen the, you know, the complete development of line array systems. You know, which which started with the basic column. I think Bill somehow you caught on to that early on that you went, okay, I want to organize these loudspeaker drivers in a column, but I need more power and I need bigger drivers, but I still want to make it a column. And I think that kind of 
once you did that, I think that drove future people, you know, to start doing things. If you go look at the wall of sound, you know, that Grateful Dead did, you know, a, right. a year later, that was all a gigantically tall column for each musician. You know, if you go look at the uh, Cal Jam in 74, you know, with Tycho Parade, all of those cabinets were organized in a big, tall column. So I, I think somehow you kind of clicked a button somewhere and people went, wait a minute. The guy at Woodstock, he was organizing things in a tall column line. Maybe he had something going. We should probably do some of that. Raul, what you were saying just there about Bill's work is really interesting in that he actually helped define the entire industry. Uh, you know, there were JPL components in the rig at Woodstock. There was yep. JPL in the, the wall of sound. Save my ass. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay, print. <laughs> that is beautiful, beautiful. I love it. I think a lot of people think that it was. It, it's always been this way. You know, Brad, you've been mixing for a number of years, and I think if you if you look at most of your mixing career, you have probably mixed most of your shows on line array systems. You know, people think that that's always been that way, but it wasn't. I mean, there is like you, we have to go back to Bill. You know, there is like before Bill and after Bill. Amen. Uh, most of my career, yes, I've been mixing on line array systems, uh, except for in the you know the club days or some theater days when you would get ground stacked boxes and you know going from a ground stacked rig to a flown line array rig really challenges you as a mixer because for me you know what i want to see happen is everybody in the room has great sound and sometimes it's very limited with the ground stacking and you know i'm just trying to aim things in a way that okay everybody's going to hear something and the big picture is going to be fairly good but you know, anytime you get on a finely tuned line array, the difference is so vast. And it's like mixing on a big stereo. It's like being in a studio with a nice set of near fields. It's, it, stri it strikes me that if Bill is the father of festival sound, that uh, JBL is in the DNA of festival sound. That's right. You know, and it's funny because it's been through so many um, critical events, you know, whether you look at Cal Jam or whether you look at the first, you know, uh, U.S. festival that Claire Brothers did in 82, 83, you know, whether you look at the some of the very first big, you know, Rod Stewart, uh, Rolling Stones, uh, Neil Diamond tours, U2, those were all systems that had JBL drivers in it. You know, and if you move closer to, you know, to now, you know, whether th these are these kind of mega rigs are things that we're finding on everything, whether you go to the presidential inauguration, you know, well, that has a big JBL mega rig. If you go to an Enrique Iglesias concert in Mexico, well, it has a big JBL mega rig. If you go to see the Pope, like there was an you know, the event in Germany where we had a million people. What? Also a big, you know, JBL mega rig. So this concept has really exploded into every aspect, whether it's a sports event, whether it's a religious event, whether it's a music event, they're scaling, you know, these 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 new technologies, you know, the new technologies we're using, you know, lightweight materials, more efficient components. You know, we always go back to the science, right? The science is not, you know, it hasn't changed. We're just expanding on some new materials and some new technologies, but we're always going back to the fundamental science that I think was key. Somehow Bill knew that. He knew that there was a, he just didn't put those drivers 
in that format by accident. He knew there was science behind it. And we continue to to follow that, you know, to increase on that. That, that was fascinating. Well, a, a million people in the audience. Yeah. For, I mean, that's, that is a mega rig. That was, yeah, that was for the Pope in Germany. That, in, in that, in, in that had a lot of, that had a lot of people. Um, but Brad, I'd, I'd love to come to you for a while. You've got a really interesting career path yourself because, you know, these days you're doing front of house for people like uh, Enrique Iglesias. You've worked with Cindy Lauper, Linkin Park, Motley Crue, Garbage. Uh, so a, a, a fairly generic question to you first. I'm just curious, did you see the Motley Crue film The Dirt? And uh, if so, what did you think of it? I saw it. I thought it should have been called The Turd. Oh. <laughs> oh. I mean it, it was it seemed more like a parody than a than anything. It did, you know, it was I don't it didn't seem like it was to be taken very seriously. Yeah. I mean, I loved working with Motley Crue. They were great people and it was a great band and I had a fabulous time. Yeah. But, you know, that whole thing, whatever. <laughs> when I met them, I had I had to meet meet each guy individually. So I, you know, I would go up to one guy and he would have his thing to say about how the sound should be and what not to use and what to use. And everybody had their own description, yep. you know, which I listened to because, you know, it's their band. But, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I just went out and pushed faders up and, you know, because I was a big <laughs> fan of Motley Crue. And I'm like, I want to hear Nicky's bass. And I, you know, I want to hear what everything Tommy does. And Mick Mars is a great guitar player. It was just funny to hear how, you know, what they thought it should be like, you know, which, I mean, I didn't argue. I just listened and then went out and mixed a show because there's 15,000 people in the audience that may want to hear it kind of like the record, you know? You had such an interesting path into being one of the drivers of the the mega rigs that you do today. Uh, you were in bands like Kicks, Wrathchild America, Back Alligators, and uh, I believe you had a, a somewhat fortuitous introduction to the world of mega rigs. And tell us a bit about your first experience doing the front of house sound. The first, okay. My first experience was the gig was taken to just pay the rent because I was still a musician. The only thing is now I'm living in Los Angeles. We had done a record for a label that decided we don't know what to do with this. We're not going to put it out. So I took the gig to pay the rent and it just so happens that they asked me if I could mix. And I said, yes. (laughs) <laughs> and it was nothing that I'd ever done on a professional level. Of course, when we made records, I sat in the studio with the engineer and the producer. And I I knew the concept. I paid attention. I knew how to get things to sound the way I wanted them to sound. I'd just never yeah. done it professionally. So my very first gig is Lollapalooza, second stage. What? And I'm walking up to the front of house. And in my head, I'm thinking, how or what am I going to say to the systems engineer? How am I going to tell him that I don't know what I'm doing without saying <laughs> that, you don't know what you're doing. That, that I don't know what I'm doing? That's so, perfect. so I walk up there and the first thing I see is this Midas XL 200 console. And it was the biggest console I'd ever seen. And it's probably, I don't know, 48 inputs. So I step up on the platform and I said, hi, my name's Brad. I'm, you know, tour manager for this band. And, just so you know, I'm more of a tour manager than I am a front of house engineer. But if you can show me around, I think I'll, I think I'll be okay. And he's like, well, sure, here. And he said, okay, here's input. And now you've got 48 channels of the same thing. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. And, you know, it was at that moment that I realized 
I just came clean with the guy and, and he was willing to show me. I didn't come off like I know, you know, I didn't come off like a know it all because I would have failed. And then that would have been the end of my career. I'd have never succeeded because I would have failed at that moment and nobody would ever hired me. So, but my sole intention was only to pay the rent and keep playing music. Well, every band that I would work for, hey, can you come work for my band? We need a tour manager, sound engineer. Okay. Yeah. You know, more money to more money to pay the rent. Then I go home and keep trying to get signed again. But <laughs> at some point, a couple years into it, you know, the act started getting a little larger. The gigs started coming, you know, more without me even having to pursue it. Like I would before one would end, I'd have another gig. And I'm like, I've spent yeah. my entire life trying to put a record out that people would buy. Now here I am just paying the rent and this is succeeding without any effort whatsoever. I mean, the, you know, that I could, obviously I was putting some effort into it to, to do the gig good. And so I end up, I'm working with Lincoln Park. Uh, I was, they were a support act on a three band bill. Their manager asked me if I could take over, you know, mixing them until they found somebody. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And at some point during the tour, a friend of mine come up to me and he said, hey, Lincoln Park sold 50,000 records this week. And I'm thinking, hmm, maybe this is where I should be. You know, and I called <laughs> the manager up and I said, hey, do you want, would you like me to stick around? And, you know, that was within, that was within three years, I think, of my first gig that I was, that I ended up there. Great. And from then on, I realized, you know what, this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm not on stage anymore, but I'm still responsible for the audience enjoying the show. And I'm still a part of the band, mm -hmm. even if I'm on the other end of the snake. For sure. You know, and for me, you know, but it was just by sheer, you know, I don't know if it was luck or what, that I just said yes at that moment without even thinking. There was no hesitation. It wasn't like, oh, well, you know, I did it for some sound companies, but, you know, I think I could do it. It was just like, yeah, I can do that, too. Brad has a series of classes called Fixing to Get Mixing, which are great. And uh, one of the things that we have talked about, you and I, many times is about the fact that you know ahead of time, maybe because you were a musician, what things, what the balance of the band was supposed to be like when you're, so actually uh, kind of accomplishing that on the console faders, it's easier if you already knew what the balance of the instruments is supposed to be like. You know, because I think that a lot of times, if you don't know in your head what things were supposed to sound like, what the balance is supposed to be between all the parts of the band, how do you know when you're there, right? And I think that's probably was your confidence. You know, you walk up to the platform, maybe you don't know the console, but you knew the sound of the band. And so I, I have to ask Bill, did, did you get to mix any of the bands at Woodstock? A little bit. Listen, I, my job was to make sure everything happened well. Systems engineering. It's systems engineering, keeping track of every part of it, making sure nothing's overdriven. Everything is humming along. That's amazing. And so, and so each band had their own engineer with them that would come out and, and be no. with you or no? no? No, nobody did. Who mixed? Hardly anybody. Oh, Harold, Sam, uh, <laughs> myself once in a while, you know, a little bit. Uh, Lee, no, Lee was on doing all the master recording, Lee Osborne. We so that, that's got to be fun. It's like you're mixing a band you've never like really mixed before. And you're also mixing monitors from front of house. 
It doesn't get much better like that, Brad. That's your next festival no. right there. It's perfect. Right? 15 bands you have never mixed. And by the way, uh, for the same check, you got to do monitors from front of house. Sorry, Eddie Kaipo. That doesn't sound like a good time to me. <laughs> it's like, that you that know. sounds like a reality TV show. You right. know, you've got sound engineers and just give them a board and a bunch of bands and yeah. uh, you right. know, they, get, they get voted for That's by the amazing. audience. But, but Brad, your career path is an incredible mixture of courage and humility and serendipity. And, it, you know, you're very much in the right place at the right time, but you, you put yourself there and you had the humility to ask for uh, the help when it like the, absolutely that one pivotal moment that was a springboard for your entire career. Um, but I know that you do a lot of passing on all of the things that you've learned in your subsequent career with your fixing to get mixing tours. Tell us a bit about those. I mean, that, they're so valuable for the next generation of sound engineers. Well, you know, I had the idea that, you know, I wanted to put together a class that whether you wanted to mix you were thinking about it or you were a professional mixer, like everybody would get something out of it. And yeah. everybody would, because my story is, I mean, I consider myself really fortunate that I went from, you know, being a starving musician to being a success, a successful mixer with no real plan at all. So I want to give back to those people that may be in a similar situation and think, you know, how did you get to where you are? And so part of the class is me telling my story about how I learned to do what I do. And then, you know, once I got more familiar with mixing consoles, I started to put together my own way that I enjoyed mixing, you know, whether it was routing the way I routed things, the way I grouped things and the way I processed the instruments. And so my class is based on that. And, and I go through three bands that I, that I worked for which is Garbage, Him, and Enrique. Wow. Three completely different types of music. But yet my process is identical. And that's what I show that it doesn't matter if you're mixing a metal band or a pop band. The process is the same. You want to make sure you can hear all the instruments. You want to make sure the audience is enjoying the show. You know, and it's a, it's, I make it about more than just mixing. It's about everything that's around me. You know, it's watching the artist. It's, it's listening to the music. It's watching the crowd. It's, you know, mixing with dynamics. Don't just mix at one level and then just leave it for the whole show because that's not music. Your fingers should never leave the mixing board. They never leave the mixing board. They're that's right. Firmly planted in the VCA section the entire night. My index finger never leaves Enrique's vocal channel ever, no matter Amazing. what's happening. Wow. Because I'm just, if there's, if I've ever truly been in the moment in my entire life, I think it's when I'm mixing a show yeah. because I'm truly in the moment and nothing else is going to distract me from what I'm doing. Yeah. And so in my class, I try to, I try to, you know, invoke that sense of passion and creativity you know, with what I do. Yes, the technical aspect, you have to know that as well. But, you know, passion and creativity and just listening is a big part of it. Yeah. And I, and I, th and, you know, it's hard to teach somebody how to listen to music. But, you know, I hope that's in some way with the way I've developed my class that people will take, you know, my experiences and try and put them into their own, you know, situation. Yeah. 
you know, the, the amazing thing is that you're doing this with a hundred thousand people around you. Right. That's, you that, know, and, and you, and you, and I've seen you because I've, I've been there sitting next to you and you're mixing it and, and you have a hundred thousand people and you're, you just want to make sure that that little word, you know, when Enrique is being very soft, that every one of those a hundred thousand people can hear that. Yeah. You know, you, you ensure that that intelligibility is out there. That So you're, you're always kind of writing Enrique and making sure that if he's very, very soft and you carry that. And if it's a very dynamic number that it has that punch you know, so it's it's a very interesting thing how systems have evolved. I think now you probably use the LA two A oh, yeah. that Bill was using f- to drive the PA and keep everything protected. But now the new sound systems and technology has advanced to give you these great dynamic range and capabilities. So now you can use an LA two A in your mixing creative process. Exactly. You know, and so it's it, to me uh, it's fascinating to watch you mix. Uh, because I know that you, you, you know, you're gonna go for for everybody for that word when he's talking to his audience on the B stage, you know, back there talking to the twenty five thousand people at the back of the audience, you know, and you, you want to make sure that everything is clearly. It, it is, it's, it, it's not easy. I mean, it's it's, no. uh, it's a little wrecking. But I mean, that's the important part of what I do is to make sure that everybody can hear everything that happens. Because me as a listener and a lover of music, that's what I want to expect out of a show. I want to hear it all. You know, one of my favorite records of all times is Pink Floyd, The Wall. Because of the dynamics and just how you can hear all those little nuances that happen in the stereo field. And that's what I try to achieve with my mixes. Even though it's Latin pop, you know, I want that sensation of, you know, the big picture. Involvement. The big, yeah. And I want to make the audience involved in the show, you know? Yeah. So, so Brad, do you right. use the wall as a, you know, do you kind of test the systems before the gigs with that album? Oh, yes, I do. There's like five songs from the wall that I use. Wow. And, and you know, all with different dynamic ranges. And there's a reason behind using each song that I do. And yeah. when the system sounds really good, like it did in Durango when it, Raul had the system dialed perfectly. Yeah, I, I could sit there and listen to the entire CD. Yeah, listening to the music that I enjoy on a finely tuned PA is another part of my day that I love, you know? And that's just all part of the creative process for me. You know, Brad, I, I must say that, you know, I, I hope someday I, I grew up to be like as good a system engineer as Bill, but I don't think that's going to happen <laughs> because, you know, I, I'm serious. I mean, nowadays, can you imagine if, if all of the system engineers that, that you and I collaborate with, if, if we got thrown into Woodstock right now, we would flunk. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Take away the smart rig. Take away the computers. Just go, okay, here you go. You got a scope. And you got a pair of pliers, you got a voltmeter, right. and uh, okay, go. And it's like, <laughs> oh, you have a soldering iron, you got to bring your soldering iron with you, you know? Yeah, so we've gotten to know the father of festival sound on the podcast, which has been super right. awesome. We've got a glimpse into the DNA of festival sound with the evolution of JBL and JBL Pro. Um, I'm wondering, because we are here to celebrate mega rigs and the biggest sound systems and the biggest concerts, um, what is the biggest or the best or the sound system that you have a, a certain connection to that you've ever worked on in a live concert setting? Well, for me, it would have to be either JBL VTX 25 or I haven't got to use it yet in the live 
setting, but the A12, I think, is going to be pretty phenomenal in the live realm. We had a show in in Turkey, in Antalya, Turkey, and then it was a one-off fly-in, and I'm playing Pink Floyd at front of house. The, The production manager comes up to me, and he's like, if, if the system sounds good, he'll walk out and listen when I play the music because we're both fans of Pink Floyd. And he turned yeah. around. He's like, what is this PA? And I said, it's JBL VTX 25-2. He said, man, wow. it sounds really good. I'm like, yes, it does. I think we should be touring with this. <laughs> and don't you know, like within when the next tour happened, went to JBL, inspect the rig, and I got Andreas and Enrique on board. And that was the PA, you know, wow. for... It's just that is a phenomenal sounding rig. Everything is there, stereo image, the fidelity of the top end, the smooth, you know, pristine highs, everything. Hmm. And it's strange because I mean you don't do very many small gigs anymore. I mean, your smallest gig now it's an arena. Yeah, you pretty know? much. And, well and we, we did a boat. Yeah, well. We we, we did a boat <laughs> off of uh Sorrento for three people. That doesn't count. <laughs> that doesn't wasn't count. that wasn't that nice. wasn't really about the music. That was just about no. Enrique hugging and yeah. kissing a few girls, and then we went off. There you go. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, it's a, that's the thing. Is that most of your systems now? I mean, are large scale systems. You really yeah. are hardly doing anything where you're going to have two hundred people, and now you're talking twenty thousand and up. Yeah. Well, you know, my first two gigs with Enrique because I had to audition for him. The first two shows, one was a wedding in a villa in the south of France, and it was about everything but audio. They didn't want to see me. They didn't want to know anything about what I was doing. I was in the corner somewhere. And the other gig was like, you know, 40 people in this little club for a record company promo giveaway. So those first two gigs weren't even in the setting that I'm in now. They were in. They wanted to know if you would stick around. Or maybe how I would handle the situation or, sure. you know, or what kind of person I was going to be, you know. When I got the call to audition for Enrique, I listened to the music and I'm like, wow, this is this is completely different from anything I've ever done. Yes, I've done Bob Seger and Cindy Lauper and the Counting Crows, which is, you know, but then I've done Jane's Addiction and Motley Crue. So it's been both ends of the spectrum, but I've never really done any sort of pop music but me being from the rock background that's how i approached the gig i didn't try to mix it in any other way than how i was familiar with mixing and how i thought it should be and that's what how i put it together and here i am six years later you know i never thought about oh it's it's you know the vocal should be way out over top and the music should be like this it's like no i'm gonna mix enrique like i'd mix a rock band it's going to have the punch and the clarity and the, you know, the push and the pull. Yeah. You know, I see it's interesting how the technology has sort of allowed many of these mega festivals nowadays to happen, you know, uh, whether you are uh, at a place like, you know, take Rock and Rio, for example, right? Massive, you know, large scale festival, you know, with hundreds of thousands of people. But if you looked at the calendar last year, you would have seen that every weekend there was a mega festival somewhere, you know, uh, all, all over the world. You know, it's, so every weekend it's, it's basically a, a concert the size 
you know, of what Bill thought it was going to be a hundred thousand people, right? So, you know, <laughs> instead of six hundred thousand people, but so so that the, the technology has allowed that to really happen. You know, it's, it's it's proliferated all over the world, and it's is the fact that that it allows you to take things apart and transport them and move them and whatnot has allowed uh, an industry, you know, of concerts and festivals that, you know, had the technology not advanced, it would have been very difficult to do that in the scale that we're doing it nowadays. Yep, sure would be. You'd never be able to pull that off. Yeah, it would be It would be very difficult. <laughs> you wouldn't have back-to-back shows like you do now. Yeah, no, very difficult, very difficult. Yep, so. it, I mean, it's still difficult. Not as difficult as Woodstock? No. No, I don't, <laughs> not, mud. yeah. Like I said, I think that if we got thrown into that gig, we would have all flunked. thank you so much to our three audio heroes Bill Hanley aka the father of festival sound Brad Divens and Raul Gonzalez for taking the time to celebrate the power and the glory of mega rigs and to explore the DNA of great festival sound I can wholeheartedly recommend Bill Hanley's biography, The Last Seat in the House, available from thelastseatinthehouse.com. And if you'd like to learn more about the Fixin' to Get Mixin' and JBL Pro workshops, just visit fixintogetmixin.com and jblpro.com and we will put all of those links in the show notes for you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast app and check out our brilliant title playlist put together by our guests every week with a few selections from myself as well. Join us next week for an edition dedicated to the amazing work of Sound Girls featuring some of the leading ladies of professional audio. See you next week. <laughs>